This evening we're going to consider avoiding needless division and we're looking at Romans chapter 14 verses 1 through to 9. I'll read those verses for you now. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God have received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord. For he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not. And giveth thanks, it giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose, and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. This evening we shall look at Romans chapter 14. We've been studying the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans for over a year now and hopefully as we've progressed from one chapter to the next you've seen how Paul continues from where he has left off. Therefore you should not be surprised to learn that what he says in chapter 14 follows on from what he's just said in the previous two chapters. First of all In chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Then when you read on, you can see that presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice to God is evidenced in various ways such as having a practical, caring and sharing love for fellow Christians. For example, look at chapter 12 and verse 10. Paul says, Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honour preferring one another. Furthermore, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice to God is seen in a love for your enemies. Also, it is seen in your subjection to the higher powers or rulers of the world who are ordained of God. Coming back to loving fellow Christians for whom Jesus shed his blood, love can very easily give way to discord and to arguments. For example, as the Apostle Paul says in chapter 14, verses 1 through to 3, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, 
but not to doubtful disputations, not to doubtful arguments. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. So there we have it, we're to guard against having arguments, despising one another, judging one another. And these things can so easily happen amongst the Lord's people. Still in verse 1, the faith spoken of is not the faith of individual Christians, but rather it is the Christian faith with all its associated doctrine that can be found in the scriptures. It's fair to say that the level of understanding and appreciation of the Christian faith and also of its application to born-again lives varies from one Christian to another and none of us have complete knowledge of the scriptures. God willing, I'll be better grounded in various aspects of the Christian faith tomorrow than I am today. And perhaps I will then feel better equipped to proclaim and explain them to others from this pulpit. Also, I stand to be corrected when I have not fully grasped certain doctrines and how those doctrines ought to be lived out in the life that I now live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. The fact is that there are certain people who occasionally give me some gentle guidance and even though I'm a pastor, I am no doubt weak in certain doctrines of the Christian faith that pertain to worship and conduct and regrettably that will inevitably inevitably play out in some of the things that I say and do at various times. I'm sure I'm not the only one and that all the redeemed of the Lord say the same thing if they're being honest. Therefore, it's an important part of your sanctification that you receive guidance and instruction from others and you continue to prayerfully read your Bible, looking to the Holy Spirit to teach you in order for you to grow in grace and to be built up in the faith. As Paul said concerning the scriptures in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. In verse 1, Paul refers to him that is weak in the faith. If there are those who are weak in the faith, then there are also others who are strong in the faith. Note that in chapter 15 and verse 1, Paul refers to both the strong and the weak. The situation that we are presented with in the first verses of chapter 14 is of a Christian who is weak in the faith in that he eats only vegetables. Paul says that the others who eat anything and everything, rather like me, are to receive him into the fellowship without arguing with him about his eating habits. Since it is a matter of faith, what we're looking at has nothing to do with someone choosing to be a vegetarian for health reasons or perhaps out of concern for animal welfare. 
It's to do with an incomplete understanding of the Christian faith and the liberty that is afforded to Christians under the terms of the new covenant of which the Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator. It seems likely that the person who is weak in the faith is someone who has concerns about the strong likelihood, especially back in Paul's time, that the meat that is available has come from an animal that has been ritually slaughtered. In other words, it has been sacrificed to idols and so he eats only vegetables. And that's something that is not really a concern to us here on our island, but it was certainly something that was a possibility where I used to live before coming to live here, that the animals were sacrificed to idols and and, uh, the, the meat of the animals was sacrificed to idols. Where... Whereas those who are strong in the faith, they don't worry about those things. They eat whatever is served to them or whatever they have bought in the market without asking questions, knowing that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is only one true God. It most certainly would not be a show of Christian love and unity to argue with those who avoid meat out of concern that the animal may have been ritually slaughtered and it would therefore be sinful behaviour on the part of those who eat anything if they were to remonstrate with the weaker brother. Also, when you look at verse 14, it would seem that the person who is weak in the faith may be influenced by the old covenant dietary laws. Just look at verse 14. Paul says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, <clears throat> but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. There's a reference to the old covenant laws that declared certain animals to be unclean. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 8 through to 10, the following is written concerning unclean animals. And the swine because it divideth the hoof, yet cheweth not the cud, it is unclean unto you. Ye shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their dead carcass. These ye shall eat of all that are in the waters, all that have fins and scales ye shall eat. And whatsoever have not fins and scales ye may not eat, it is unclean unto you. Even now, <clears throat> even now, Jews religiously follow those ceremonial laws and they eat only kosher food that complies with the law of Moses, which, amongst other things, forbids the eating of pork because pigs do not chew the cud, and shellfish because they do not have fins and scales. More to the point, there are even some Christians who comply, at least in part, with the Old Testament dietary laws, I've, I've met them, I know some people that won't go near pork because of what they read and understand of the Old Testament dietary laws. We can see in verse 14 that the Lord Jesus Christ had revealed to Paul that all food is clean and Paul is revealing that very same message to us that there is nothing unclean of itself. Even so, Paul says that to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, 
to him it is unclean. That message is for those who are weak in the faith, or at least they are weak in the matter of what can be eaten. To them, pork sausages are unclean. Let's see what you understand so far. Is it okay for the person who has no regard for what he eats to browbeat and argue with an abstainer of certain foods who has come through the the doors of our church and perhaps uh, comes to the fellowship meal in our church hall? You happen to notice that that person avoids eating meat or perhaps avoids eating the pork and so you enter into a discussion about it and then that discussion turns into an argument. Is that a show of love? Is it acceptable to beat someone over the head about his abstinence? And quote Romans chapter 14, verse 14, where Paul says, I I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Or maybe you'll quote 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4, where Paul says, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. The answer is no, it's not okay. As Paul also says in verse 3, Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. A loving consideration ought to be shown to him who abstains from certain foods. In fact, Paul, who was someone who did not have any qualms about what he ate, was prepared to abstain from eating all things so as not to cause offence to a brother who did have issues with certain foods. Look at what he said in verse 21. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. <clears throat> also in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 13, Paul said, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. I'll just quote the New Testament commentator Lenski on that verse. He said, We who are strong in knowledge must be equally strong in love. Knowledge alone is nothing. Knowledge combined with love is everything. We must protect the weak until they too become strong. Negatively, we must not offend their conscience. Positively, we must bear with them and instruct them. Of equal importance, the Christian who is weak in the faith, in that he has not yet grasped the full extent of the liberty that Christians have when it comes to what can be eaten, should not go around judging his brother who eats anything and everything. In fact, how dare he do such a thing? How dare he judge his brother when you consider that God has chosen for salvation the one who is being judged and God has adopted him as his son through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God one day and it most certainly is not for one Christian to judge another Christian on matters of diet. We'll have a look at 
verses 5 and 6 now in chapter 14. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. Precisely what it is that Paul is referring to when he speaks about one day that may or may not be esteemed above another, above another is the big question. It seems unlikely that verse 5 refers to the weekly Sabbath, since God has ordained that we remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And that is non-negotiable. It is one of the Ten Commandments that were written externally on a table of stone by the finger of God for his old covenant people, the Jews. And now it is written internally in the hearts of all born-again Christians. The likelihood is that the day that Paul is talking about in verse 5 and 6 is a reference to the various Old Covenant feast days, such as the Day of Atonement and the Passover, all of which speak of deliverance and forgiveness of sins through the shedding of blood, and which have their fulfilment in the mediator of the New Covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, Paul said, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. The holy day and the Sabbath days in that verse are not a reference to the ever-binding fourth commandment, but to the various days of rest that were attached to the Old Old Testament feasts. As the Bible commentator Albert Barnes explains, the word Sabbath in the Old Testament is applied not only to the seventh day, but to all the days of holy rest that were observed by the Hebrews and particularly to the beginning and close of their great festivals. There is doubtless reference to those days in this place, since the word is used in the plural number and the apostle does not refer particularly to the Sabbath properly so called. There is no evidence from this passage that he would teach that there was no obligation to observe any holy time, for there is not the slightest reason to believe that he meant to teach that one of the Ten Commandments had ceased to be binding on mankind. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16 brings together both the dietary laws and the various holy days of the Old Covenant that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 14. And he is saying very clearly, let no man judge you. Even though whatever it is that is being observed, whether it be certain dietary regulations or holy days that have been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ or nailed to his cross, the motive may nevertheless not be wrong if done with a view to serving the Lord and not to earn salvation nor to add to the finished work of Jesus. But also, according to verse 5 and 6, the person who does not regard certain days as being above the others 
and does not regard certain food as being unclean and to be avoided, ought to hold to that position as unto the Lord and with thanksgiving. Either position, whether it be to abstain or not to abstain from certain foods, and whether it be to elevate certain days above the rest or not to, if held with a view to honouring the Lord, it is compliant with chapter 12 and verse 1 where Paul said, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And neither position should be the cause of arguments and judgments amongst the Lord's people, all of whom have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. We'll look at verses 7 through to 9. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. The us and the we in these verses refer to both strong and weak Christians. We all we eat all foods, or else we abstain from certain foods. And we esteem every day the same, or else we esteem one day above others in our priestly service to God. We live our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ and not for ourselves. And this we do in life and in death. And Paul says in verse 8, We are the Lord's. Dear Christian, your life is not your own. You are bought with a price. The Son of God hath purchased you with his own blood. All power is given to the crucified and risen Saviour. And as can be seen in verse 9, he is Lord both of the living and the dead. Praise God that his only begotten Son is Lord of the living. But what are we, what are we to make of him being Lord of the dead? That's what it says there in verse 9. Lord both of the living, the dead rather, Lord both of the dead and the living. After all, it's written in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 32 that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And it's not as if the Lord Jesus Christ reigns over corpses. To answer that, when verse 9 is read alongside various other Bible verses, we learn that Jesus is Lord of everyone who has ever lived. That is, the souls of all who have died throughout history and whose bodies have now dissolved into the earth, as well as all of us who are still alive in soul and in body. As we close, very clearly, Understand very clearly that none of what we have been considering this evening forbids someone such as a close friend or perhaps a pastor from gently inquiring at an appropriate time why it is that the one who is weak in the faith only eats vegetables or avoids what was once declared to be unclean or why it is that he esteems certain days above the rest. It might simply be that he isn't there yet 
with regards to having an understanding and appreciation of the extent of the freedom that being yoked and bound to the Lord Jesus Christ brings. Then again, it might just be that he is pursuing a religion of works and he considers his vegetarianism or his observance of various Old Testament feast days and holy days as his righteousness before God. If that is the case, then it's as well to take him back to the earlier chapters of Romans where Paul made it abundantly clear that we are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not by our vegetarianism or by any other works of the law. As Paul has said in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Apart from anything else, what that means is that there will be no one amongst the multitude in heaven who will be able to say, I'm here because I didn't eat pork sausages or because I observed the Old Testament Passover holy days. There'll be none of that. Having said all that, there are two New Testament ordinances or sacraments that are applicable to all who are truly trusting in Christ alone for their acceptance before God. And those two ordinances are believers' baptism and the Lord's Supper. All males used to be circumcised under the terms of the old covenant relationship that God had with the Jews. They were circumcised in the flesh as eight-day-old babies and faith in God was therefore not a requirement. However, under the terms of the new covenant relationship that God has with the church through the mediation of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all true Christians have a very real saving faith in Jesus and are baptised as a sign of fellowship with him in his death and in his resurrection. As for the Lord's Supper, to quote the Baptist Confession, it was instituted by Jesus the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of himself in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. These are the two things that are now observed by all who, having shown repentance towards God, are trusting in the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of their sins and for their acceptance before God. And I therefore strongly encourage each one of you who is trusting in Jesus as your Saviour from sin to take full advantage of those two means of God's grace. Amen.